welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith's weekly sermon podcast. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. 1 John chapter 1. I'm going to be reading verses 5 through 10. 1 John 1, beginning with verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Let us pray. Father, we come now to hear a word from you. We pray for the one who preaches, quicken his mind and guard his lips, that he would rightly divide your word of truth, and we ask this in Jesus' name. A few years ago, Paul and I were at a, at a wedding in Stillwater, Oklahoma. That's the home of Oklahoma State University, the home of the Cowboys. And at this wedding and the reception afterward, just about every young man who was there had on his boots, his jeans, his Ariat shirt, his cowboy hat, the little round imprint in the back of his pocket where his skull went. And if he could grow one, he had a really nice handlebar mustache. With almost no exception, that's how the entire crowd looked at the wedding and at the reception. And I cast my eye upon them and I began to judge. You see, I grew up on a farm. One of the things we raised was cattle. I have been on a horse, and I have moved herds of cattle from one pasture to the other. I've been involved with all of the health care of cattle, vaccinations and so forth, and I have seen real cowboys. I have known real cowboys. They can make a horse walk forward. They can make it trot. They can make it gallop. They can make it sprint just with their knees pressed against that horse's side. They could make that horse back up. They could make that horse spin in one spot like a ballerina do. What is that called? A what? Whatever. <laughs> they could make the horse rear up. They could, they could do all sorts of things on that horse. They could rope a steer or a calf that had taken off full speed with a rope get off the horse, throw the animal to the ground and secure it by tying its legs together. They could dehorn, they could masculate, they could vaccinate, they could take, they could do everything on a horse and beside the horse that had to do with cattle. Now, as I surveyed all these young men that were at that reception, I knew that most of them were not real cowboys. There was a term, I don't know if it's, it's in vogue anymore, they used to call them drugstore cowboys. The only thing cowboy about most of them was their outfit. 
I say that to say this. I was reading a, a recent survey a few weeks ago. It's a survey establishing some t- statistics about religion in the United States. And one of the statistics that they revealed is this, that 63% of adults in the United States identify as Christian. That number seemed a little high to me. It seemed a little high just like all those guys out on that dance floor doing the two-step scene. That seemed a little high, too. They weren't the real thing. Well, here's the truth about all of those who identify as Christian. They all fall into one group or another. They are either genuine believers or they are false professors. That's not speculation on my part. I make that statement based on an assertion that Jesus Christ himself made. Do you remember what he said when he said this? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There are genuine believers and there are false professors. So how do you know which one you are? How do you know if you really are the real deal? The only way you can know is by objectively examining your faith. And this book of 1 John is extremely helpful in that task. In this letter, John presents to us a series of tests. These are tests of genuine Christian identity. And in these tests, John shows the difference between the genuine believer and the false professor. And our passage this morning is one of those tests. And if you're keeping count, there are three parts to this test. So let's begin. Look, if you will, again at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, we often use light as a metaphor to represent other things. We use light to represent love. Thus you get the saying, she is the light of my life. And we use light to represent hope. I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And enlightenment, the light came on in my head, and so on. But when John writes that God is light, he's not speaking in metaphors. John is not telling us that there is something about God that can be compared to light. No, John is telling us that God in the very essence of his being is light. And God is light in two ways. First, God is light in his very presence. This speaks to the beauty and majesty of God's presence. Now, of course, we understand that God is spirit, that he is present everywhere. And because he is spirit, he's completely invisible to our senses. But besides the omnipresence of God, there is also the manifest presence of God where God does allow something of himself to be seen. When the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, he introduced himself this way. He said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Gabriel's informing Zechariah that his normal post is in the city of heaven itself. More specifically, his post is in the throne room of God, in the presence of God. Now, when Gabriel said that he stands in the presence of God, he wasn't talking about the invisible, 
everywhere presence of God. He was talking about the localized and revealed and perceived presence of God. Gabriel could see something of God as he sat on his throne, directing the activities of the angels and receiving the prayers of all the saints and exercising his sovereign will all over the universe. But what is it Gabriel actually sees when he stands in the presence of the Lord? The writer of Hebrews tells us this about our God. He says, our God is a consuming fire. Now, like John, the writer of Hebrews is not speaking in metaphors or symbolism. He's looking back in time to when Moses and the nation of Israel were camped out at the base of Mount Sinai, waiting for God to come and speak to Moses. And as they stood there waiting, the mountain began to shake. And the mountain was covered with smoke. And there were constant flashes of lightning and continuous claps of thunder and a loud trumpet blowing over and over and over. It was a terrifying spectacle. But that was not the presence of God. That was the prelude to the presence of God. For as they stood there, the children of Israel saw coming down, of he- coming down out of heaven a fire. It came down to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up to meet with God. And Moses said when he stood before the presence of God, what he saw was the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring, a fierce fire. What is it that Gabriel sees as he stands in the presence of God? He sees the same thing that all the others see as they stand in the presence of God. He sees the same thing that all the saints who have gone on before us see as they stand in the presence of God. They they see the brilliant and beautiful light of the glory of God that radiates out from his unseen presence. Paul put it this way. In 1 Timothy 6.16, he said, God dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. Can you see with your faith, with your mind's eye, the glory of God in heaven? Well, God is not just light in his presence. He's also light in his perfections. All of God's attributes... His holiness and righteousness, His wisdom and power, His goodness and mercy, His truth and love and justice, all of His attributes are infinite and eternal and unchangeable light. And in the same way that physical light shows the way in physical darkness, the light of God's perfection show us the way out of spiritual darkness. In the Ozarks, in deep underground streams, there is a little fish. It's called the Ozark cave fish. It's also called the ghost fish. This little fish is about two inches long, and it spends its entire life in absolute darkness. Because no light has ever touched this little fish, it is Its color is clear. In fact, it's nearly translucent. And these little fish are completely blind. 
Now we are a lot like the little ghost fish. We too were born in darkness. There was a time when darkness was all we knew. There was a time like this little fish that darkness seemed normal. Darkness seemed right. But darkness is not right. Darkness is not normal. And it is only in the light of God's perfections that we can see that it is not right. We can see that it is not normal. It is only in the light of God's perfections that we can see the darkness of our sin and the death that it produces. It is only in the light of God's perfections that we can see the way out of the darkness. And that way out is through God's eternally begotten Son, Jesus Christ, who is himself the light of the world. Now it's important that we remember as we consider that God is light that we cannot separate the light of God's presence from the light of His perfections. God is not the sum of different parts. For example, there is not a part of God that is love and another part that is just. God in the entirety of His being is love. God in the entirety of his being is just. And in the same way, there is not one light of his presence and another light of his perfections. God is one light. The light of his presence is the light of his perfections. And the light of his perfections is the light of his presence. He is one light. Do you remember when Moses made a request of God. Now Moses said, we've already established he could see this devouring fire. He had seen something of the glory of God. And he made this request. He said, please show me your glory. Moses wanted to see more. He knew that he had not seen the full, the fullness of God's glory. He wanted to see more of the glory of his presence. And God answered Moses' request this way. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And after the goodness of God passed in front of Moses and he came down from the mountain, his face was glowing just from seeing the goodness of God. You see, the light of God is seen not just in the majesty of his presence but it's also seen in the revealing of his perfections. They may not realize it, but you've just finished the first part of this test. I know you're probably scratching your heads at this point because I was scratching my head at this point as I was preparing this message. How is this declaration about the nature of God a test of my faith? For a while it didn't make sense to me. But now it does. You see, the nature of your faith, whether it is genuine or false, is rooted in your view of God. The genuine believer comes to the God who is all-knowing and all-powerful, the God who is sovereign over all things, the God who is himself holy and righteous and demands holiness and righteousness of us. The genuine believer comes to a God that rewards uprightness and punishes sin. 
but the false professor comes to a God of his own making. A God who is conformed to our preferences and our opinions and our desires. A God who always receives us no matter how we come. A God who always rewards and never punishes. A God who winks at sin and indulges disobedience. So here's the test. Which God do you come to? The God of the scriptures? Or the God that you would like to have? Now we come to the second part of our test. I want you to look with me at verses 6 and 7 again. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. First, let's talk about what these verses do not mean. There are some interpreters who argue that both of these verses are speaking about genuine believers. Both of these verses are speaking about people who are truly saved. In verse 6, John is writing about believers who have lost their fellowship with God because they've fallen into a life of sin. They no longer enjoy close, intimate relations with God because of their lives. And in verse 7, he's writing about believers who continue to enjoy fellowship with God because they're living godly lives. Now that all makes sense, doesn't it? That sounds reasonable. I mean, that's how human relationships work. When I am kind and respectful, when I am considerate of other family members, there is a sweetness in my interaction with that other family member. But when I am rude, when I am selfish, when I am inconsiderate toward that other family member, the relationship is still intact. We still remain husband and wife, father and son, mother and daughter, brother and sister. But while the relationship intact is intact, the relationship has become strained. It's been disrupted by our poor behavior. Well, that might be how human relationships work, but that is not what John is talking about in these two verses. He's not talking, when he writes about having fellowship with God, he's not talking about how well we're getting along with God. He's not talking about how close we feel to God. That's not what he's talking about at all. And to see that, we need to look at this word fellowship. We need to see what this word really means. This word fellowship literally means this. It means to be joined together. It means to be in union with another. And when John writes about having fellowship with God, again, he's not talking about how we're get, you're getting along with God. John is writing about our position in Christ. He's talking about our being joined together in union with Christ. He's talking about Christ being in you and you being in Christ. And your fellowship with Christ is not in any way dependent upon your faithfulness to Christ. Your fellowship with Christ 
is dependent upon the faithfulness of God. You see, when you came to Christ by faith, you were placed into a state of fellowship with Jesus Christ. Your fellowship with Christ was initiated by God and it is secured by God. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, 9. He said, God is faithful. Let me say that again. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So let's see what these two verses do mean. If we claim to have fellowship with God, but we are walking in darkness, and walking in darkness is not an occasional stumble. It's not just a mishap here or there. Walking in darkness is a lifestyle of sin. It is living in total rebellion against God, walking in darkness. But if we say that we have fellowship with God, if we say that we are in Christ, but we are walking in darkness, we are liars. If we say we have union with Christ, but our lives, our hearts, our minds are not being conformed to His perfection, then we're not what we claim to be. If we say that we love Jesus, but what our life reveals is a love of self and the things of this world, we are not a believer. We're a false professor. But, this about the false professor. They claim to be in Christ and they believe, many of them do, that they actually are in Christ. But they're not in Christ. Oh, they may have made a profession of faith, may have been baptized into the church. They may even take some comfort in participating in the forms of the Christian religion. They may in some legalistic sense, find comfort in coming to a worship service or participating in other ministries within the church, but they don't know Jesus. They're still in darkness, and their lives, the way they live, proves that they're in darkness. But the one who claims to have fellowship with Christ and he is walking in the light, he can be assured that he belongs to Christ. He can be assured that his, his sins have been paid for by the blood of Christ. You see, the genuine believer, his heart, his mind, his conduct is being conformed to the character of God. He strives to live a holy life. He pursues righteousness. And he doesn't just strive for a holy life. He doesn't just pursue a holy life. He actually desires righteousness. He desires to please God. He loves the truth of God's Word. He loves the perfections of God. He doesn't count the law of God to be restrictive or a burden. No, he counts the law of God to be a blessing because it is in the law of God that we learn the things that please God. And the believer's greatest desire is to please God in what he thinks and what he feels 
and how he lives. That's the second part of the test. Now we come to the third and final part of the test. Here John talks about how we address, how we acknowledge and address our sin. Look with me at verse 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I know that last test is kind of intimidating. Only genuine believers walk in the light. And I'm sure that made some of you cringe a little bit because uh, I don't know that I'm quite, quite doing that. Well, John reminds us in these verses 8 through 10 that walking in the light is not living a life of sinless perfection. I don't care how much you love Christ. I don't care how much you want to be like Christ. I don't care how hard you try to be like Christ. You can never completely eliminate the presence of sin from your life. Oh yes, we, when we were saved, we were given a new nature. God quickened our mind and gave us a new heart so that we could understand and believe and live according to the truth of the gospel. And he also sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in us, to teach us, to strengthen us, to guide us. And while we have this new nature, and while we have the Holy Spirit residing in us to help us, we also carry with us a little bit of that old darkness. We still possess a sinful nature. And as long as you live in this mortal body, there will be that struggle between your old nature and your new. There will be warfare between your flesh and your spirit. And here's the reality for the true believer who is walking in the light. Sometimes your flesh will win and you'll sin. And sometimes your spirit will win and you'll resist the temptation to sin. And then over time, more and more and more, you will be conformed to the image of God's Son. One of my favorite Presbyterian preachers is a man by the name of Steve Brown. Sometimes he waxes eloquently and sometimes he's just blunt. This particular time he was blunt and he said this, he said, I am not good, but I am better than I was. That is the picture of one who is walking in the light. They're not good, but they're better than they were. But even though we sin as we're walking in the light, walking in the light includes the right attitude towards sin. You can't just be a defeatist and throw up your hand and say, well, I'm going to sin anyway, so what difference does it make? No. Walking in the light includes the proper attitude towards sin. First, it includes the proper acknowledgement of our sin. When the believer sins, he acknowledges that the Word of God says it is sin. He agrees with God 
that it is sin. But there's more to the way of addressing or, or dealing with our sin than just acknowledgement, and that's how we deal with it. What do we do with it once we acknowledge it? The genuine believer, when he sins, comes to God in repentance and confession, seeking his forgiveness. It may not always be immediate. It may take some time. And it's going to happen over and over and over and over again. But the genuine believer ultimately will come to God in repentance, confessing his sins. Do you remember when David committed adultery with Bathsheba? Committed adultery with another man's wife? She became pregnant with his child, and rather than repent of his sin and confess his sin, David tried to hide his sin, tried to cover it up. And his attempt at a cover-up only led to more grievous sins. His sin of adultery was compounded into the sin of murder. Now, ultimately, David did deal it with his sin in the way that God prescribes. Ultimately, he grieved over his sin. And he repented of his sin. And he confessed his sin. But what changed in David? What caused him to move from hiding his sin to confessing his sin? It was his own personal pain. You see, the hiding of his sin took David to a place of severe emotional and spiritual despair. Because he belonged to God, because he had fellowship with God, God would not let him rest in his sin. David wrote about that, how God dealt with him with his sin in Psalm 32, verses 3 through 4. This is what he said, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. And if you have fellowship with God, if you are truly in Christ, God won't let you rest in your sin either. His hand will be heavy upon you until you come to him in repentance and confession. But there are some who rest just fine in their sins. And they rest just fine in their sins because they deny their sins. And those who deny their sins are not true believers. They are false professors. Some deny their sins by actually denying the reality of their sin. Even though the Word of God clearly condemns their behavior and calls it sin, they either reject the authority of Scripture or they manipulate Scripture, applying their own carnal knowledge and the philosophies of the world to that Scripture until it reads the way they want it to read. They twist the Scriptures, changing the meaning of the Scriptures until, guess what, their sin just goes away. They're not believers. 
those who twist the gospel and the word of God to excuse their sin are not believers. They're false professors. And then there are those who deny their sin, but they don't deny the reality of sin, but they do deny the implications of their sin. They deny what their sin reveals about them. They're living a life of sin and they know it. They don't deny it. They'll admit that the word of God condemns their behavior as as sin. They don't dispute it. But they keep on loving their sin and living in their sin. They know they're sinning, but they have no desire to do anything else. They keep on loving their sin and living in their sin. But they think they're going to be okay. They think it's going to all work out in the end because, you see, they said a little prayer. They made a profession of faith. They believed that they were saved by grace And then they pervert the grace of God. They use it as a license to do those things that displease God. They are not believers. They're false professors. The the genuine believer, though, those who truly know Christ, they don't deny the reality or the implications of their sin. They acknowledge when they sin. They come to God in repentance and confession when they sin. They continue to find forgiveness over and over and over again. And then they keep on walking in the light. Let's pray. Father, we pray for those in this sanctuary who truly do have fellowship with you that they would leave this place resting in the full assurance that they are yours and that they would be strengthened as they continue to walk in the light. And we pray for those who don't know you, work in their hearts, that they would come into your light. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.